them and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. You'll find it also printed on the back of your sermon outline. If you're here today and didn't bring your Bible with you, we have that here, and you can follow along with me and some of the other passages we will look at as well. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So far the reading of God's Word. Well, we had quite a powerful storm this week all across the East Coast. And it was, we got a lot of snow here. I shoveled and shoveled and shoveled, but it was not like what happened in Georgia and Alabama and Virginia and the Carolinas. It looked like a war zone down there. Why is that? Because inches of ice fell and blanketed and covered and gripped the trees and entire trees crashed to the ground on top of houses and on top of cars and, on, and of course, on top of the power lines. And the power lines slathered with ice crumbled under their own weight, and over a million people lost power this week. And not just for an hour or so, but for days, and it brings back memories, doesn't it, to us of Hurricane Sandy. Only this time, the temperatures were in the low teens, and it was cold and bitterly cold. And you remember the darkness comes when the sun sets early, in February, the sun goes down and it's dark and you don't have a television and you don't have a nightlight and you don't have your computer. It's just dark. And hearts get depressed in that seasonal affective disorder. You get sad and people just lose a sense of momentum in their life. But the power companies in the south are a little different and a little quicker than they were after Hurricane Sandy up here. And so within 24, 48, sometimes 36 hours, over half a million people got their power restored as the crews went out and crews from other states came in. And they were directed, and what did they do? But they examined and they explored, and then they repaired the power lines and brought them, spliced them back together, and turned on the power.
You know, in the book of Galatians, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is examining and exploring and then repairing the power grid at the church of Galatia, right? Because these are people who have lost their joy. They have lost their way on the path of salvation. They are confused. And is there anything more important for a pastor, for a Sunday school teacher, for a home fellowship group leader or an elder in the church, is there anything more important than making sure your people are connected to Christ and the power is moving uh, into their life? The summary statement of Galatians 2.20, we studied it several months ago, but it's like the, the great banner for, Galatians, for the book of Galatians. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is talking about restoring the power line, and how is the power line restored? It is restored by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. When all the counterfeits are washed away and all the religious ritual is shoved into the background, the power line is turned back on by faith. Now, in our passage, in verse 1, Paul makes a statement. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. But first I want you to notice the next word. The next word is, therefore. And so this is a signal to us that, that Paul is turning the corner in this book. And he does this in many of his epistles. And in fact, the Bible does this frequently. You, you get the so, and then you get the so what right? In the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are this magnificent statement of systematic theology, the truths of the Bible. And then chapter 12 begins, therefore, let me tell you how to live the Christian life. The book of Ephesians, it's just like that. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, this marvelous compact statement of the riches of the gospel of grace Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then he begins chapter 4 with the word. Therefore, now let's put this into practice and apply it practically to our lives. And this is what's happening here in the book of Galatians. The first two chapters, you will recall, speak of how this heresy has invaded the Galatian church, right? Legalism, a call back to circumcision, a call back to submission to the laws of Moses according to the Sinai Covenant. That is the heresy that has invaded the church. And then chapters 3 and 4 are all about justification by the grace of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's chapters 3 and 4. Now we're beginning chapter 5, and he's getting to the therefore. And that's just my first point today. It's a very simple, short point. We're done with point one. You learn the truths of living. You learn the Bible. And the Bible then equips you for every good work. 
and word. That's uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Theology is for living. And so you want right theology about life so you know how to live life. Point number two. So as you live your life, day in and day out, therefore, what does God want you to know? And he tells us at the beginning of this phrase that leaps off the page from last week's study. And if you weren't here, you can listen to it online. Uh, But he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom. Over the next several weeks, this word is going to come up again and again. Freedom. And oh, we Americans love our freedom, don't we? The land of the free and the home of the brave. What state is it that says live free or die? I forget. Which state is that? New Hampshire. Live free or die. We love our freedom. But what is the most precious kind of freedom? Economic freedom is good. Political freedom is good. But the most precious kind of freedom is spiritual freedom. Millions and millions of people do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings spiritual freedom. Do you know it? Do you know that Jesus Christ came into the world to set you free? This is important. I wish I could just take the time and bicycle through the entire New Testament as it talks about all the freedoms that we have in Jesus. You know, um, Paul here, he is talking in particular last week about the freedom from the demands, the regulations, and the condemnation of the Sinai Covenant. Freedom from the crushing burden of the law that accuses you of your sins but gives you no power to turn away from your sins. But the rest of the New Testament on top of that brings the word freedom and applies it to guilt and applies it to sin, those patterns of life that have dogged you and he gives you freedom from guilt and he gives you freedom from sin. And the book of Hebrews talks about the fear of death. It says every person lives in the fear of death. And Jesus Christ brings freedom from the fear of death. There's freedom from shame. We all have shame in our lives. We all have baggage. I've told you my brother-in-law, he says, rule number one, everybody has baggage, right? We all have a broken and painful past, and Jesus Christ can set you free from the broken, painful past in your life. Freedom. I spent a lot of time this week reading Martin Luther's comments on this passage, reading and rereading them. I was just gripped. And I was gripped by how much Luther was gripped by our passage today. And here's what he says when he gets to this statement that Christ brings freedom, and he says, for 
who is able to express what a thing it is when a man is assured in his heart that God neither is nor will be angry with him? You hear that? What can a man say? How could you possibly express what it feels like to you once you become convinced that God is not angry with you? And not only that he is not angry with you, but he will not get angry with you. And, and Luther says this, that God neither is nor will be angry with him, but will be forever a merciful and loving father unto him for Christ's sake. Why does Luther add the words for Christ's sake? Mm. God has set you free from the fear of his wrath for Christ's sake on account of what Jesus Christ has done. What, you mean it's not because I'm such a fine fellow? <laughs> no, it's not because I'm such a fine fellow. It is for Christ's sake, Luther says, that we are set free from the, the terror of the wrath of God why? Here's what he goes on. Get, get a hold of this. For as the wrath of God cannot terrify us because Christ has delivered us from that wrath on the cross. And Luther, he goes on, he says, so when the law accuses us, and it will, and when we discover the ugliness of sin in our lives, and we do, and when the specter of death frightens us, as it will, what happens? Luther says, faith rises up and says, these things belong not to me, for Christ has made me free. Can you say that? A lot of us, a lot of us are, a lot of us don't care too much about our sin. We need God to give us more conviction of our sin. Others of us have excruciatingly tender consciences, and every time there is conviction of sin in our life, we are just devastated, and we wonder, now, is God going to turn me now into a cinder? As He has every right to do, and yes... He does have every right to do that. But according to Martin Luther, who says, according to the Apostle Paul, Jesus has set you free from that, Luther calls it, fearful fantasy. Because that's what it is. If you're a Christian and your sins have been crucified on the cross with Jesus Christ, then it is just a fearful fantasy that God's going to turn you into a cinder because he has already expiated, he has already made full payment for your sin on the cross. And Luther jumps back to Isaiah 54, verse 8, where the prophecy, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and he says, but with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And though the feelings come very strong, I may die, 
for all will taste death. I may die, but death is not the end. I have sinned, and my sin is terrible, and it hurts someone else, and it dishonored God. I deserve condemnation, but there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Luther says, he, he, he grabs hold of John 8.36, so if the Son should set you free, you will be free indeed. Therefore, stand firm. Now, why does he say stand firm? Who wouldn't stand firm? Well, apparently it's not all that easy to stand firm and claim these things. And it isn't. Why? Because it's icy out there. It's slippery out there, isn't it? This morning, I, went out, I shoveled that nice layer of snow on my driveway this morning, and what was underneath it? ice. I just happened to make my driveway more slippery this morning. But you know, I, I was inside and I looked inside the glove and the hat box and I found something I've never used before. I, I, you know what these are? I found <laughs> these cleats that you can put on and I strapped them onto my shoe. And you know what? You can really stand firm when you've got cleats on. And that ice isn't going to take your feet out from under you. And when Paul says, stand firm, he's saying, you need to put the cleats on. And you need to do warfare with these, what Luther calls, these frightful fantasies of the terror of the wrath of God and the sense of condemnation and the, uh, the specter of the fear of death. And he says, you need to stand firm against those and know that you are free in Jesus Christ Live according to the position you have in Jesus Christ. You know, one of my favorite movies, I mentioned it already, is The Shawshank Redemption. And there is this marvelous, very tender scene in The Shawshank Redemption where, where Andy Dufresne's old friend, the librarian, his name was Brooks, played by James Whitmore, and Brooks was in jail for 60 years. Now as an old man, he's been given parole. And Brooks leaves, he shuffles out of the jail, and they have a rooming house for him, and he gets a job in a grocery store. Remember this scene? And he's bagging groceries. He's bagging the groceries, and suddenly he turns to the manager, and he says, Excuse me, but permission to go to the bathroom? The manager says, Brooks, you're a free man now. Go to the bathroom whenever you need to go to the bathroom. But what was, what was going on in his mind? He was still living as though, I mean, it's one thing to be respectful to your boss, but the boss was saying, look, you're a free man. You need to go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom. That's fine. Then come back and, and do your work. But what he had done is he had reverted back to the way he was thinking when he was still in jail, when you couldn't even go to the bathroom without getting permission, you see. And we go back into the incarceration of the old man, of the old life. And what Brooks needed to do and what you and I need to do is what Paul is telling the Galatians they need to do. We need to retrain our minds and our hearts to go back 
to slavery. If you were with us last week, remember Hagar is the Sinai covenant, and Hagar's children are in slavery, and Paul gives the command. What was the command? Cast out the slave woman and her son. Cast her out. Don't go back to slavery, because now our text, Christ has set us free. Now, if you're going to stand firm, Paul reinforces this in verses 2, 3, and 4. And he says, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And, and what he is telling us is if that, that if you and I cannot get our freedom in Christ right, if we try and gain our acceptance with God by our works, by our performance, by our religious rituals, by our keeping of the law, then the Bible says there are disastrous consequences in verses 2 through 4. Disastrous consequences. And I have to tell you, I am afraid that there are millions of people around the world, millions of church-going people around the world who are in this mess that Paul is talking about. And largely, it's not because they're trusting in the old covenant sacrament of circumcision, but because they are trusting in the new covenant sign that has replaced circumcision, that sign of baptism. And people are living their lives saying, well, Pastor John baptized me, so I must be saved. The Monsignor baptized me, so I must be saved. And there are people all over the world who are engaged in what the, the theological term, you don't need to remember this, it's sacerdotalism, salvation by sacraments. If you eat the cookie, you got the grace. If they poured the water over your head, you got the grace. Or as Paul, Paul's friends would say, if I was circumcised, God finds favor with me. But whatever your performance mode of operation might be, even one that's approved by God, as circumcision certainly was, look at what he says, three things. He says, if, if that's the way you want to go, Okay, but then Christ is of no benefit to you. Do you see that in the text? He puts it straight out. Then Christ is of no benefit to you. Because that's Jesus plus, and we've been talking about that uh, for the past months. That's a salvation by Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is great, but plus my performance. And if you... Choose the way of Jesus plus, Paul says, Christ is of no benefit to you. You are rejecting Jesus. And then he says, okay, if you're going to go that way and rely on your performance of the law to save you, then you know what you've signed up for? You must keep the whole law. He says it right there. 
the book of James tells us that as well. You want to go that direction, fine. But cursed is everyone who does not keep everything written in the book of the law. That was chapter 3, verse 14. The law of God is not like a grocery store. Well, let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll have some circumcision, but I won't keep the calendar and the food laws. And No, no, it's not a smorgasbord. You want to live under the law? Then you keep the law. And Jesus told you what that means. And it is right and holy and good. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And we would add all the time. And you would love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And we know how much you love yourself. The Sinai Covenant is all or nothing. And Philip Riken, in his commentary that I looked at this week, Riken uh, quotes from the journal of an ancient Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel II. And Gamaliel records a time when he was studying the book of Ezekiel. The rabbi had been reading the book of Ezekiel, which describes the life of a man who is righteous and does what is just and right, Ezekiel 18.5. When Gamaliel finished reading, he says, I began to weep, saying, only he who keeps all these requirements will live, not he who keeps only one of them. And the rabbi was weeping. Why? Because he knew that he could never meet this perfect standard of God's law. And the Galatians couldn't either. And the North Shore Community Church can't either. And that's why Paul says, don't go back to circumcision. And thirdly, he says, if you live under the law, he says, you have fallen away from grace. You have been severed from Christ. You have abandoned the gospel of grace. So he says, stand firm against these things. How do you do that? Well, you have to become aware of yourself. You have to, you have to wake up to yourself. We call that self-examination. So you know what I did this week? I made my own list. I have my own list. I don't know what's on your list, but how do I know when I've begun to fall away from grace and abandon my trust, my reliance on God's grace? Well, the first thing on my list is when I start looking for credit for my own good deeds. When I want you to notice my own good deeds and congratulate me for them, that's the first thing. Anybody else ever have that tendency? I just want you to know. And when I, when I find that, then I know I'm living as though my actions are going to make God and people approve of me, and I'm back under the law. The next thing on my list is when I get defensive. When I get defensive, that is, when there are those moments when I just can't take criticism. Hmm. You Surely you're mistaken in your criticism of me. You just don't understand, and I have three dozen excuses why I behaved as I did. And 
When I can't handle it, when somebody criticizes me, I know I'm not living under the grace of God. Why? Because, as Tim Keller and Jack Miller before him used to say, cheer up. You're worse than you think. And that's just true. So if you're going to criticize me and I'm living under grace, I'm going to say, well, at least you don't know about all that other stuff. And, and uh, I'm just so grateful for the grace of God that I'm not defensive. And maybe I have something to learn from your criticism. You know what else is on my list? It's when I compare myself with other people. Because then it's, I know, it's all about my performance. And it, when you get this, this movement in your soul that I get my sense of identity by comparing myself with other people, I've fallen from grace. I'm not, I'm not living under the grace of God, am I? Because I'm accepted in the beloved Son. Jesus has made me his, his, his brother. I'm, I'm, I'm a royal priest in the household of the king. Why do I need to compare myself with you? And uh, probably, probably, the, probably it should have been first, is when I become fixated on my reputation, and I know that I'm not enthralled with the grace of God and the glory of God. It's all about me. What's that song we sang, Lord? You know, it's all about you, it's all about you, but how do I live? No, it's all about me, Lord. It's all about me and my reputation. I need to make sure that you handle my reputation properly. I want to make sure you hear from me. You handle my reputation with, with care. And then I'm back under the law. And it's when, when God's love so invades my heart, then I can stand firm against those operations in my heart. What about your heart? What's on your list? You should make a list today. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. But this leads to the great summary statement of verse 6, and this is the climax of this, this, this hinge into the last two chapters of Galatians. And what does he say here? For in Christ Jesus... It's always about that. Being in Christ. Salvation comes from being in Christ. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What really matters? Well, one more time, it's faith. We've already established. What is it that is the power grid that locks you into the power grid? You know, it's faith. Do you believe? I'm asking you today. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And have you received Him? And do you rest on Christ alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? It's our second membership question. Everybody who's joined our church has had to ask and answer that question. Faith, do you believe? And will you publicly declare? Will you identify yourself with the family of God who says, yes, we, we are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. It's faith, because faith is the instrument that unites us to Jesus. Now, don't fall into the trip, 
trap where you start to torture yourself. Pastor John said, I need to have faith. Do I have enough faith? Do I have enough faith? I have to look at my faith. Let me look at my heart. Do I have enough faith? Check my pockets. Do I have... And pretty soon, the, the, the reformers the, in the Reformation, they used to say, do not fall into the trap of looking for faith so that you have faith in your faith. And that happens to a lot of sensitive Christians, you know, who wonder, but do I, do I have enough faith? If you're not careful, you fall into the trap of actually having faith in faith. You know, in the liberal Christian world, they, they just say, a man has faith. He's a, he's a man of faith. Well, I like to say to them, well, faith in what? Or more importantly, faith in who? Because you are not saved by your faith. It's actually a mistake when, when preachers say you're saved by faith. What they mean is faith is the instrument by which you are saved, but you are not saved by your faith. You are saved by Christ. Christ saves. Faith lays hold of Christ. Faith rests in Christ. Faith follows Christ. Faith listens to Christ. So he, in, he said that in chapter 1, he said it in chapter 2, he said it in chapter 3, he said it in chapter 4. Now twice in our passage, faith is what embraces grace. We wait for Jesus who will come again. We wait for him and we believe his righteousness will be revealed in us. Without faith, the Bible says it is impossible to please God. You know that verse, Hebrews 11 verse 6. And so we go back to the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. You see, what was Brooks's problem? His problem was he didn't really know he was free. He didn't really believe he was free. Do you believe you are free from the terrors of the wrath of God, from the horror of your own death, from the condemnation of your own guilt? Do you believe you are free? If you do, he says, circumcision doesn't matter. You're circumcised, fine. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. What matters? Faith that then springs to life and blossoms in what? Love. Love. These next couple of weeks, we're going to see faith expressing itself through love, the most powerful movement in the universe. Listen, I don't have a whole lot of patience with preachers who quote Greek words, but there is one Greek word you should know. Is the word translated for love here? What is that word? Some of you know it. It is the word agape. Agape. The great word of the Bible that explains what God did when he sent his son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. Love leads to giving, self-giving. We read in Ephesians 5.22 that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. It's agape. He agaped us and gave himself for us. What is love? Love is sacrificial, self-giving to others. It is self-donation. 
It is giving of myself in the care of others. And that's what God did. So Elias and Christine read for us from 1 Corinthians 13, didn't they? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not arrogant. Agape does not keep a record of wrongs but forgives. Now how in the world can an impatient, self-centered, unforgiving man love like that? And the answer is through faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus. Love is patient. Lord, I'm impatient. But by faith, I believe you have been patient with me. Have you not, Lord? Oh, you have been patient, else I'd be a cinder. You've been patient with me. So I can be patient with you. How can I forgive this person who did this dastardly deed for me? The universe entitles me to get even with them. How dare they? But you have forgiven me. And now I can forgive you. And the list goes on. This is what love is. And we cultivate that lifestyle of agape, that lifestyle of love. You know the marvelous thing about it all? Is that though the Christian is free from the law, you know the Christian actually keeps the law. Did you know that? (laughs) You don't get your salvation by keeping the law, but Paul has this marvelous verse in Romans 13.10, which says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And all of the law of God is about loving God and loving your neighbor, and, and as that love flows through faith, as the flowers blossom and bloom in your life because of who Jesus is in your life, because you believe in him, you rest in him, that love actually fulfills the law of God in the blessing of others, giving glory to him. So, faith is the root, love is the fruit, and I ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Let Jesus love you. Let Jesus love you. Believe that he loves you. And let his love come to you and through you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for agape, your agape, your amazing love. We marvel that you should die for us, that you should give yourself, you should donate yourself for us. And right now, Lord, we renounce Jesus plus, we renounce being saved by our baptism or being saved by our religious performance or being saved by putting a nickel in the offering plate or being saved by helping a little old lady across the street. We renounce that instead. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever done this. Would you say, Lord Jesus, I trust you alone to be my Savior. And I trust you to make me new. And I ask that your love would come to me in new and fresh ways like I've never imagined before. It would heal the brokenness of my life. It would 
heal the baggage that I'm carrying, the guilt that I bear, the fear that so grips me. And by faith, I rise up and say with Luther, these things are not of me. And I rest in Jesus. And then that love would go not only to me, but through me. And you would be glorified, and people would be blessed where I go. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.